in the words of some guy from some band, it's the Bloody Beatles White Album. Shut up. Welcome to the Divisive Albums Podcast, where we take sensible, reasonable advice, such as that opening quote, and throw it in the dumpster. I'm your host, MTI, a typical 35-year-old from the U.S., whose pronouns are he, him. Here on the Divisive Albums Podcast, we look at albums from established bands that divided their fanbase or were otherwise controversial. And on today's episode, we're looking at one of the most divisive and controversial bands in history. Hold on, let me check my notes here. The Beatles. Huh. Okay, I'm going to be honest here, for the first time recording this podcast, I am intimidated by this band and the album choice. The Beatles really need no introduction. John, Paul, George, and Ringo dominated the 1960s Beatlemania, all of that. They evolved from what was effectively a boy band into a group that changed rock music forever, and did that in roughly three or four years between when they broke out huge in 1963 and when they started releasing albums like Rubber Soul, Revolver, and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band around 1966 and 1967. They did a bunch of TV appearances and made a few movies, too. Of course, being that prolific meant the four of them spent a lot of time together, and as a side effect, they couldn't possibly last. The band officially announced their breakup in April of 1970, although they were actually finished as a group about six months before that. Now, I've provided you zero information you didn't probably already know. But what sets the Beatles apart from their 1960s peers like the Rolling Stones or the Beach Boys, or even later legendary bands like Led Zeppelin, are the periodic smaller waves of Beatlemania that sweep at least the US from time to time, and these are usually tied to some specific Beatles-related event. A few of these are the initial release of the Beatles catalog on CD in the late 1980s, the Beatles Anthology CDs and accompanying documentary miniseries in the mid-1990s, and the release of Beatles Rock Band and accompanying remastering of their catalog in the late 2000s. I can't say for sure, but I would expect another wave to come up in the next year or so, and for reference, I am recording this in April of 2019, along with a bunch of 50th anniversary of the end of the Beatles retrospectives. Heck, this may already be starting. There's a movie coming out at the end of June 2019 called Yesterday, whose plot revolves around everyone except a single struggling musician just up and forgetting the Beatles ever existed. I imagine hijinks will ensue. In any event, providing you didn't somehow skip the intro and completely ignore the show notes and title, you already know what album we're discussing today. Yes, we're talking about the Beatles' 1968 double album. This album is officially just called The Beatles, but thanks to its stark white cover, it's more commonly and popularly referred to as The White Album. Now, thanks to the limitations of the LP format, there are some albums from back in the day, released as double albums that probably wouldn't be considered such today. Previously on this podcast, we covered Fleetwood Mac's Tusk, which is one such album clocking in at 74 minutes. Another such album, while not technically a double album, is Metallica's And Justice For All, which despite being only 65 minutes long or so, is actually released on two LPs in the record format. Now, this technically but not really a double album situation does not apply to the White Album. It's got 30 songs on it, with lengths ranging from under a minute to over 8 minutes, and altogether is about 93 minutes long. It is certainly a time investment. But of course this is the Beatles. Was anything the Beatles did really divisive? 
Well, I've been assured by bigger Beatles fans than myself that yes, this album qualifies. And from what I can find on the internet, that checks out. It's not so much the overall quality of the White Album that divides people. Consensus is pretty strong that even the Beatles weren't immune to the double album problem, but that roughly two-thirds of the album is brilliant. But if you were to ask a hundred people which third of the album they would cut out, you would probably get a hundred different answers, which is part of the fun of discussing this album. But discussing this album is also challenging. Believe it or not, out of the album's 30 songs, precisely zero of them were released as singles in either Britain or the US. You see, for whatever reason, EMI, the Beatles' British record label, had this policy of not releasing Beatles singles on their albums, so certain European territories and Australia did get Obla Dee, Obla Da, and While My Guitar Gently Weeps off of this album. Other than that, the closest the White Album had to a single was an alternate version of Revolution 1 that was released with Hey Jude. That version is just called Revolution, and it's actually the one people not super into the Beatles are likely to know. Now, I'm not going to be going track by track for this album. With 30 songs, we'd be here for about two hours if I did that. And if you think that's a good thing, just think about how long it's taken me to get out these last couple episodes, and then rethink that. What I'll be doing this episode is taking 10 of the lesser-known tracks, a relative term considering, again, this is The Beatles, and listening to those. This brings up the question of, how did I decide what a lesser-known track from this album was? After all, I couldn't use singles as the metric, there weren't any from this album in the US. Instead, I turned to my other hobby, video games. As I mentioned before, there was an entire rock band game dedicated to the Beatles. Now, presuming Wikipedia is not betraying me here, I count five songs off the White Album that were in that game. We'll call those the best-known tracks from the album and rule those out of the discussion. Those five are Back in the USSR, Dear Prudence, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, Birthday, and Helter Skelter. Honestly, I thought the White Album was a little more well-represented in the Beatles rock band, but this is what I have to work with, which means I still have to pick 10 out of 25 songs and find the ones I think are most interesting and go with those. Fortunately, the first track not in Beatles rock band, which is called Glass Onion, gives us an excellent starting point for discussion. Here's a bit of that song. The song is just packed full of references to other Beatles songs. You see, there was quite a bit of mythology built up around the Beatles by 1968, to say nothing of now in April 2019. The bit about Strawberry Fields is an obvious reference to Strawberry Fields Forever. And later on, we get this. I told you about the walrus and me. So, speaking of mythology, in 1967, a rumor that Paul McCartney had actually died in a car crash in 1966 and then been replaced by an imposter began. But it wasn't until 1969 that that rumor suddenly exploded into the popular consciousness. This was brought about by two factors. A man calling into Detroit's WKNR-FM and discussing this rumor with DJ Russ Gibb for about an hour, and an article in the Michigan Daily, the University of Michigan's campus newspaper, 
written by a student named Fred Labor, who had listened to that radio exchange. The Walrus Was Paul lyric was one of the many alleged clues to the Paul is Dead conspiracy theory. Labor claimed that Walrus was Greek for corpse. Now, it's not. That would be Toma, or if you want to go with the more literal dead body, that would be Necrosoma. And I apologize to anyone Greek out there for butchering your language. But in 1969, there was no Google Translate, and apparently no one bothered to do any fact-checking. Now, to be fair to Labor, he was very upfront from the start that he'd made the whole thing up. He thought it was obvious satire and was shocked when various mainstream newspapers took his article at face value and spread it across the country like wildfire. And to be as fair as I can to the people who picked up on and debated this rumor, 1969 was a bit of a turbulent time in the U.S., with the Vietnam War in full swing, plus the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy the previous year, people were a little more open to, frankly, wacky conspiracy theories. Also, Paul McCartney was relatively out of the public eye around this time. Now, there was a more mundane explanation for that, namely the Beatles were on the verge of imploding, but the general public didn't know that yet. Anyway, there's one more thing I want to highlight in this song. Here's the chorus. Accenting the second syllable in onion is a little strange, but whatever, it's the Beatles, they know what they're doing, I'll allow it. Moving on, the early part of the White Album is ripe for discussion in all sorts of ways. Here's a bit of Obla Di Obla Da. This is a Paul McCartney song, which is not really the interesting part. No, the interesting part is the song's last verse. What the heck happened there? Molly and Desmond switched roles in that last verse, and Desmond's pronouns changed for good measure. The explanation is simple, Paul just flubbed the lyric, and they left it in because the other Beatles A found it funny and B were sick of working on the song. The next song on the album is called Wild Honey Pie. It's also by Paul McCartney. See if you can tell. You couldn't tell that was by Paul McCartney? Yeah, me neither. I don't really know what this is. Wikipedia tells me that this, along with one other song we'll get to later, are among the two most commonly cut songs when people perform the Turn the White Album into a Single Album Experiment. Now, I didn't second-guess Fleetwood Mac and their double album, so I'm sure as heck not going to second-guess the Beatles. What I will say, though, is that reading that fact off of Wikipedia did not surprise me one bit. This is the next song, the continuing story of Bungalow Bill. Hey, Bungalow Bill, what did you kill? Bungalow Bill, hey, Bungalow Bill. 
This is a John Lennon song, and while it's not as out there as Wild Honey Pie, it is one of the stranger songs on the album. It comes off as a kind of demented children's show theme. The song is about a hunter who's also a mama's boy. He takes his mom along on all his hunts. And there's a Captain Marvel reference, the DC version, if you're curious, because reasons I don't really know. Also, listen to this. The children asked him if to kill was not a sin. His mommy butted him. If looks could kill, it would have been us instead of him. All the children sing. That high voice that is obviously not any of the Beatles is Yoko Ono, John Lennon's girlfriend and later wife. This is the first time a non-Beatle sings a lead vocal on a Beatles song. Ono is an artist in multiple mediums, and she actually met Lennon at a London exhibition of her art. She was also blamed for breaking up the Beatles for quite a while. If you've ever seen the movie This Is Spinal Tap, the Janine Pettibone character and her influence on the band is meant as something of a Yoko Ono parody. Funnily enough, according to Wikipedia, she was added to the movie mid-production to calm down studio executives and give the film something of a plot. But I'm digressing. Back to Yoko Ono, the theory, meme, whatever you want to call it that is Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles is not true. And without getting into the hornet's nest about why this take persists, I'll just say there are multiple other reasons for the breakup, most of which boil down to the foursome had spent basically every waking moment together since 1962, and John, Paul, and George had done similar for several years prior to Ringo joining the band in 1962. Either way, I'm going to skip ahead a bit on this record now, to the middle of what I call the animal block. This song is called Piggies, and it's by George Harrison. Have you seen the little piggies crawling in the dirt? And for all the little piggies, life is getting worse. Always having dirt to play around in. So at first, the song seems like it's talking about pigs. But then we get this. Have you seen the bigger piggies in the starched white sheds? You will find the bigger piggies stirring up the dirt. Always have clean sheds to play around with. Do ho ho, the piggies are symbolism for capitalists. Everywhere there's lots of piggies living piggy lives. You can see them out for dinner with their piggy wives. Clutching forks and knives to eat their bacon. And those capitalists are symbolically cannibals, too! <gasps> Snark aside, the song illustrates one of the factors in the breakup of the Beatles. John Lennon and Paul McCartney were the best-known and primary songwriters in the Beatles. A Hard Day's Night, their third album, is made up entirely of Lennon-McCartney songs. But Harrison rapidly came into his own in terms of songwriting. His Taxman opens the Beatles' 1966 album Revolver in a big way. And besides Piggies, while My Guitar Gently Weeps is another Harrison song on this album, and it may be the album's best track. Harrison felt that the Lennon-McCartney duo weren't giving him enough credit for his songwriting chops, and eventually relationships between all four of the Beatles deteriorated to the point where Harrison once said, The biggest break in my career was getting into the Beatles in 1962. The second biggest break since then is getting out of them. 
Of course, even the maturing George Harrison wasn't above writing a goofy song meant to be taken at face value. This song is called Savoy Truffle, and its lyrical content can be summed up as Hey Eric Clapton, I'd appreciate you not eating my entire box of chocolates, thanks. In fact, I'm kind of worried about your dental health. Keep that up, uh, you're going to lose all your teeth. You know it's good news But you have to have them all put out After the Savoy Truffle This bouncing between serious subjects and more frivolous fare is something System of a Down, a band you probably never expected to be compared to the Beatles, would do many years later throughout their career. The specific example I'm thinking of is the end of their Mesmerize album, where Sandwiched Between Sad Statue, a song that generally laments human suffering and particularly laments people being unable to agree on much of anything, and Lost in Hollywood, a fable about how Tinseltown chews up and spits out would-be starlets dreaming of glory, you have Old School Hollywood, which is about being ignored at a charity baseball game featuring a bunch of washed-up celebrities. Moving on, here's another Lennon track for you. Yes, I'm Yeah, Lennon is not happy here. There's a definite over-the-top element to the lyrics, taking the blues to their most absurd possible conclusion. But this isn't just a performance. According to Rolling Stone magazine, Lennon said he felt suicidal around this time, after the group's trip to India left Lennon feeling empty. He also admitted to feeling self-conscious about singing in the blues style. And yet this shows how the Beatles as a group really could have been anything they wanted, and really were at various points throughout their career. Now, I'm no blues connoisseur, but at least in my opinion, this is just a really good straight-up blues song. Earlier, I mentioned Back in the USSR as a song we wouldn't be covering in this podcast, but I do have to point out that that song has a middle-eight bridge section where the Beatles arguably out-Beach Boys the Beach Boys, proving further that they could have been whatever they wanted. Yeah, the Beatles were kind of amazing. Your Blues is credited to Lennon and McCartney, which in its own way shines a light onto another of the factors in the Beatles breaking up. In the Beatles' early period, the Lennon-McCartney collaboration was a true collaboration. The two would bring bits and pieces of songs to one another, work on them together, and generally make them better than the sum of their parts. But by the White Album, the Lennon-McCartney songs were written almost exclusively by one of Lennon or McCartney. Now, a bigger Beatles fan than I am can probably tell you which songs are which, even without the lead vocals and liner notes to provide clues. Musically at this point, Lennon was irritated with the fact that McCartney was primarily still writing happy, sappy pop songs. And I don't want to take sides, but Lennon had a point. Take a listen to this. Martha, my dear, though I spend my days in conversation, please remember me, Martha, my love, don't forget me, Martha, my dear. This is called Martha, My Dear, 
and it would fit in just fine in a circa 1940 screwball romantic comedy movie. And this isn't the only song along these lines. Honey pie, you are making me crazy. I'm in love, but I'm lazy. So won't you please come home? Oh, honey pie. That was Honey Pie, not to be confused with the earlier Wild Honey Pie, and it has the same kind of feel as Martha My Dear. I guess this is just where McCartney's head was at, which was not where Lennon's head was at. And Lennon wasn't the only one irritated by this. McCartney thought Lennon was increasingly focused on avant-garde non-songs. Ignoring that this is a bit hypocritical coming from the guy who wrote and recorded Wild Honey Pie, McCartney also had a point. His ire was focused on one Lennon composition in particular, and it's this one. Number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. That certainly exists. Lennon has said that this song, Revolution 9, was, quote, just a drawing of a revolution, end quote, which I can see. And I can respect the time and dedication it must have taken to put this together. See, in 1968, there were no studios and a laptop. There's no Pro Tools, no Audacity. You can just Control-C sound effects out of wherever and Control-V them into a digital workstation the way you can now. You would record stuff to tape, cut the tape up, tape the tape back together, mix the tape down onto other tapes, and so on. Putting together something like Revolution 9 was a long, arduous process, one I would not have the patience for. Just look at how long it takes me to get on an episode of this podcast. At the end of the creation of this song, Lennon was using all three of Abbey Road Studios to mix the various tracks down into this song. What I'm trying to say here is that I respect the heck out of Revolution 9, and to be fair, you should listen to it once all the way through on a good pair of over-the-ear headphones. This lets you really pick out the individual elements as opposed to just listening to a miasma of noise. But that doesn't mean I ever want to listen to it again. Back when we discussed Wild Honey Pie, I mentioned that there were two songs on this album people most commonly cut when they perform the Turn It From A Double Album To A Single Album exercise, and you probably guessed that this is the other one. And I can't really disagree with that. Wild Honey Pie and Revolution 9 are the only two songs on this album I would call bad. There are a few more, especially near the middle of the album, that I would classify as forgettable. What do I mean by that? I mean I literally forget they exist until they come up when I listen to them listening to the album all the way through. These include I Will and Don't Pass Me By, the latter of which was written by Ringo Starr. Speaking of Ringo, I've given him short shrift throughout the discussion of this album, in part due to the fact that he only wrote the one song on it that I just termed forgettable. But he was as frustrated, if not more frustrated, than any of the other Beatles, to the point that he actually temporarily quit the band while making this album. Several of its drum parts were actually recorded by McCartney during Ringo's absence. Now, unlike the other three Beatles, a lot of his frustration was self-directed. The story as Ringo tells it is that he went to John Lennon and told him he was quitting the band, first because he felt like he wasn't playing the drums up to his own personal high standards, and secondly because he felt like an outsider among the other three Beatles. 
John's immediate response was, I thought it was you three, meaning John thought that he was the odd man out around that time. Ringo then went to Paul and told him basically the same thing he told John, to which Paul responded, I thought it was you three, in the same way John did. After that, Ringo didn't even bother talking to George before leaving. Regardless, he eventually came back after the rest of the Beatles made it clear they felt they needed him, and they finished making the White Album. And for a 93-minute or so album spread out over 30 songs, the White Album is a remarkably strong album. Yes, it does have a few clunkers and forgettable songs, but even those tend to be short enough that I can't be bothered to skip them when they come up because they're usually over before they can really get on my nerves. And much like Tusk, this album should be listened to start to finish at least once to get the full experience for what the Beatles were going for. With all attention in the studio, the White Album really marked the beginning of the end of the Beatles as a creative group. But was it the beginning of the end for them commercially? No. No, 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 no. The album hit number one on the Billboard Top LPs chart, which you probably know as the Billboard 200. It also topped the charts in at least eight other countries, among them Canada, France, and Australia. Now, as a sign of how different promoting albums was in 1968, the album actually took three weeks to hit number one on the Billboard chart, and that was remarkably quick for the time. Compare Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which took a month from its release to hit number one. The album had legs, too. Lots of legs. I mentioned in the Tusk episode that only eight albums in the history of the RIAA had gone 20 times platinum, or to put it another way, went diamond twice. That number is nine now. In February of 2019, the White Album received its 20 through 24 times platinum certification. That's a lot of platinums. If you're curious, that's enough to put it third all-time among non-compilation albums, behind Michael Jackson's Thriller and The Eagles Hotel California. Even if you include compilations, it still ranks fourth. The Eagles' Their Greatest Hits 1971-1975 tops everything. But either way, that's some pretty good company to be in. So that's the White Album. It's interesting how many songs I hadn't heard off of it before now. And it's an extremely varied album, in part owing to the fact that all four Beatles were doing their own thing more than ever around this time. People have observed that it's less a Beatles album, and more four solo albums with the Beatles name on it. Ignoring the fact that Lennon and or McCartney wrote the vast majority of the songs, there's something to that. But even then, there's the occasional surprise like McCartney's Wild Honey Pie, and Harrison juxtaposing While My Guitar Gently Weeps with Savoy Truffle. Glad I listened to this album, and you should listen to this album too. Thanks for listening to the Divisive Albums Podcast. You can find the podcast on iTunes, and if you like it, please rate, subscribe, review, and all that good stuff. I have a website at MTI.com, and a Twitter at MTI.com, M-T-I-D-O-T-C-O-M. I also have a Patreon page at Patreon.com slash MTI. Finally, my wife Silver and I have started a podcast where we each pick an album and we both discuss our picks. That's called the Music for Two podcast, and you can get that at MusicfortwoPodcast.com. Bye-bye.